Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network, which can be found at americansongwriter.com. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with us on social media by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com. Our guests on this episode of Songcraft are Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, best known for co-writing and producing nearly every Janet Jackson hit. They've worked with a who's who of artists, earning them 26 Billboard number 1 R&B hits, 16 Billboard number 1 pop hits, more Producer of the Year Grammy nominations than anyone in history, and a place in the Songwriters Hall of Fame. We'll chat with them about their varied career and their new first-ever album under their own names, entitled Volume 1. Part 1 Paul, you know, we do a little thing here sometimes on Songcraft called Mailbag, where yeah. we share uh, messages that people have written us to let us know what they think of the show, um, maybe a particular uh, favorite interview or something that they want to share. Sometimes people write in uh, not to tell us how great they think we are, but to tell us how great they think uh, other people are that we are associated with. And we're um, like, who cares? And we're like, yeah, we want to just talk about us. Yeah. Just why, you know, but we actually got a, a message uh, from a guy named Fred. I'm not going to use his last name because he actually didn't give me permission to read this email. I'm just <laughs> taking the liberty of doing it. Uh, but I thought it would be interesting. He says, I've been listening to your podcast for a few years. I love the show. I've heard you promote Pearl Snap Studios many times, and I finally got around to engaging with Pearl Snap and Justin. They created a demo for one of the songs I wrote, and they did an outstanding job. And then he sent us a SoundCloud link to the demo. And I got to say, Justin and his team did, in fact, do an outstanding job. So, wow. Yeah, it was it was really cool. So um, anyway, so then Fred goes on. He says, uh, thank you so much for recommending Pearl Snap Studios. So, you know, we talk on here about Pearl Snap. They obviously are our, our longtime sponsor at Songcraft. But we wouldn't have Pearl Snap be a sponsor if we didn't believe in what Justin and uh and his crew do. So um, thank you, Fred, for sharing that. That's really good to hear because it means that real people are actually going <laughs> and, and you know, heeding our advice. So if you are uh, a songwriter and, you know, you're trying to do a demo that you want to pitch to somebody else or maybe you want to do your own kind of artist thing, um, doesn't matter if you're a hobbyist or somebody who's really, you know, trying to do this, uh, you know, move to the next level or you're already a professional songwriter who's looking for, uh, a good place to get demos done no matter what your style of music um, Justin and Pearl Snap Studios can hook you up and I'd just like to thank Fred for doing our work for us thank on this you, ad yes because people don't know this but podcasting is hard it is really hard it might be uh, next to being a mom the hardest job in the world <laughs> part two well Scott to me one of the most fun things about doing this podcast is when we get to sit down with someone who has loomed large in our memories and in our upbringing um, as an influence, uh, just as kind of a rock star to us. And yeah. I would say that today's interview with Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis is certainly one of those. I actually have a vivid memory of being a kid and watching MTV and seeing Janet Jackson with... Uh, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis on stage and they had the matching suits, yeah. they had the Ray-Ban shades, they had the cool hats 
And, uh, you know, our listeners don't get to experience this in the way that we did, but we actually did this interview via Zoom and they both logged on from separate places, uh, but they had on the hats and the sunglasses. And man, I was like, when I saw that, I was so stoked. I was like, yes, yeah. they are like, they're, they're Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis around the clock. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that's an that's a total look. And producers kind of have a sound. You can be like, hey, that sounds like so-and-so produced it, or that right. sounds like that guy. Not too many producers have a look. Yeah, I I, I would say maybe uh, Phil Spector had a look for better or worse. <laughs> uh, but... Yeah, yeah, that that was a look. That was <laughs> yeah. a look. But uh, no, you're right. I mean, y- you think about like uh, a Willie Nelson or somebody like that, yeah. and you know, you think of the braids and the bandana. Like, there's certain artists that yeah. you you could be a certain artist for Halloween. Like, if if someone right. were to say, oh, you know, I'm going to be Tom Petty for Halloween. Well, you kind of get a sense. Michael Jackson, you you picture up like I know what that costume would look like. Right. You don't really get that with producers. Like they don't necessarily have that kind of Not so identity. Much. And yeah. these guys do, which is really cool. Yeah, and and I think you know, there's something to that. There was a real profile to being Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis in a way that they were stars in their own right, and, yeah. and, and they might have kind of invented the concept of the rock star producer. I mean, hmm. there certainly have been famous producers and and who's you know. You know their name goes out in front of them. You know some of them were artists before. You think about like a Todd Rundgren or a Jeff Lynne, who had artist careers and their fame kind of went into their production career with them. Right. But Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis just like built it from the ground up as producers, writers. This is who we are. Yeah. We're in the video. You know, we're as recognizable <laughs> as anyone. Right. Um. And, and it got to the point where you sort of go, oh, they're doing that record. I should give that a listen. Yeah. Right. That's a good point. Where. You know, there's people I, I would think of like a, a T-Bone Burnett yeah. or a Rick Rubin, um, people that when I hear that they produced a record, it gives that record instant credibility. Yeah. It almost doesn't even matter, you know, sometimes like who the artist is or maybe if it's an artist I never heard of, um, you know, I would go, oh, I'll check that out because, you know, those guys are associated with it. So, you know, it's going to be good. I think Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis are that same sort of thing. If somebody says, oh, have you heard such and such an artist? No, I don't. I don't know who that is. Oh, they were produced by Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like uh, I'm going to give that a, a shot. I want to hear that. You know? Yeah. And, and here's what makes this like e- even more y- unique and interesting is that we were like 11 <laughs> right. and recognizing the names of these producers. Right. We weren't like in the music business. Yeah. And the, we were kids. Right. And I knew maybe who weird Al, and Michael Jackson, <laughs> like a few like really prominent names. And then I knew right. these producers. And I think for people that are not from our era, this may not seem all that interesting because there's tons of rock star producers now. Right. Max you know, Martin. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. They, they have these kind of cool stage names. Um, you know, people know who Phineas is, right. you know, who, who works with his sister, Billie Eilish and Skrillex. Exactly. The, the, the name of, of a cool guy producer is kind of a thing now. But I, I honestly think these guys invented it. Yeah, I, I think that you can make a strong argument for that, that the yeah, the cool because even like Quincy Jones. Right. You know, I mean, now I think Quincy Jones is like super cool. But when I was a kid. I knew Quincy Jones was involved in Michael Jackson and we are the world and all that, but he kind of, he sort of looked like somebody's dad, you know, like even though he was, you knew he was like a big shot. He didn't seem like somebody that like, you know, was necessarily cool in the sense that a a kid would look at that and think like, Oh, I want to be like that guy. I don't know how you could dress up like Quincy Jones for Halloween at the time (laughs) and have everybody know who you were. Yeah. Now now people might've thought if you and I did this for Halloween, they might've thought we were the blues brothers. (laughs) If we were trying to dress, it probably like, would not have the desired effect. Yeah, yeah, not no. so much. But uh, we would not have been as cool as Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. We are now. <laughs> well, of course. I mean, yeah. we just ooze coolness at this point. 
these these guys are are incredibly accomplished uh, and incredibly cool. Um, kind of intimidated me to be honest uh, with the interview. I, I hope I did okay. Um, I thought you did well. I, I noticed your knees knocking together yeah. while we were talking to them, but uh, I think you kept it together. And uh, you know, I think uh, maybe they they even uh, found it enjoyable speaking to you. What would you say is the percentage chance they're talking about us right now the way we're talking about them? <laughs> I'd say they haven't stopped talking about us since we interviewed them. <laughs> I think uh, that, you know, they've probably been pretty obsessed with, with Songcraft, if, if I had to guess. Yeah, well, everybody, listen to the interview and, and tell me what you think. Part three. With 26 Billboard number one R&B hits and 16 Billboard number one pop hits to their credit, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis are perhaps the most influential and successful songwriting and production duo in modern music history. With a total of 41 top 10 hits in the U.S., Jimmy and Terry were named ASCAP Songwriters of the Year a record-breaking nine times. They are perhaps best known for their work with Janet Jackson, beginning with the Control album, which earned the duo a Grammy for Producer of the Year. Between 1986 and 1994, they scored 13 number one songs with Janet on either the R&B or pop chart, including What Have You Done For Me Lately, Nasty, When I Think Of You, Control, Let's Wait A While, Miss You Much, Rhythm Nation, Escapade, Love Will Never Do Without You, The Best Things In Life For Free, That's The Way Love Goes, Anytime, Anyplace, and Again, which earned Jimmy, Terry, and Janet an Academy Award nomination for Best Original Song. Jimmy and Terry got their start as musicians with Morris Day and The Time, the Prince-produced band whose biggest hit was the Jam and Lewis-penned Jerk Out. They made the transition to a successful songwriting and production team, working with the SOS band, which landed a number two R&B hit with Just Be Good To Me. From there, they made their mark on pop and R&B hits for decades to come. In addition to their work with Jackson, the duo wrote and produced the number one pop singles Human by Human League, Romantic by Karen White, Thank God I Found You by Mariah Carey, and the Boys to Men singles On Bended Knee and Four Seasons of Loneliness. Additional R&B chart toppers include Encore by Cheryl Lynn, Fake by Alexander O'Neill, Everything I Miss at Home by Sherelle, Sensitivity by Ralph Tresvent, and the Johnny Gill singles Rub You the Right Way and Wrap My Body Tight. Other highlights from their catalog include New Editions, If It Isn't Love and I'm Still in Love with You, No More Drama by Mary J. Blige, Robert Palmer's hit pop cover of their Sherelle single, I Didn't Mean to Turn You On, and recordings by Gladys Knight and the Pips, Barry White, Michael Jackson, Lionel Richie, Usher, Spice Girls, Aretha Franklin, Charlie Wilson, Lettucey, Sting, Elton John, Beyonce, Rihanna, Rod Stewart, Drake, Kendrick Lamar, Gwen Stefani, Willie Nelson, and many others. Always versatile, the duo has earned Grammy Awards for Best R&B Album for Shaka Khan's Funk This, Best Gospel Song for Yolanda Adams' Be Blessed, and Best Dance Recording for Janet Jackson's number one pop and R&B hit, All For You. Additional Jackson hits that were written and produced with Jam and Lewis include the Janet and Michael Jackson hit Scream and the number one singles Together Again, I Get Lonely, Doesn't Really Matter, and the Nelly duet Call On Me. In total, the team has earned over 100 gold, platinum, multi-platinum, and diamond album certifications from the RIAA, have received more Producer of the Year Grammy nominations than anyone in history, earned the NAACP Lifetime Achievement Award, and were inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. They've recently released their first album under their own names, which is called Volume 1.
Jimmy and Terry, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah, it's great to have the opportunity to speak with you guys. Um, now, in 1992, you produced the soundtrack for the film Mo Money, and you wrote a bunch of the songs on there. Um, you produced the entire album, a lot of different artists. There were some uh, hits that, that came off that album by other artists. But one of the tracks on there was actually credited to Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis, and, and that might have been kind of the the first inkling of you guys as the featured artists rather than the behind the scenes uh, producer songwriter kind of role. But here we are all these years later and you've got your first album with you guys as the artists. So talk a bit about all these years later, why was now the time to kind of step into the spotlight in the artist role as well? Well, it's interesting because the, the Mo Money thing was more because we needed a song, but we didn't really have an artist for the song. So we just kind of slapped our names on it. And uh, <laughs> uh, but but yeah, that was that was kind of funny. And that and that's really I love the, the fact that you brought that up because we've talked to a bunch of people and nobody has ever brought that up before. So <laughs> that's pretty funny. Um, well, the journey of our album really started 35 years ago we were started doing tracks for what we thought was going to be our album. And around that same time, we ended up starting to do the control record with Janet. And when we thought the control record was finished, John McClain, who was the A&R person on the record, came to Minneapolis and he said, play me what you got. And we played him, you know, control and nasty. And uh, when I think of you and pleasure principle and, you know, all these records that we thought were kind of good records. And uh, like all A&R people, he said, I just need one more. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? So anyway, we then hopped in the car and we were going to go grab a bite to eat. Terry put a cassette in. So we're dating ourselves. He put a cassette in and he said, John, listen to this. This is some stuff for our album. And about the third song in, John goes, wait a minute. That's the one I need for Janet. We said, what are you talking about? He said, I need that song for Janet. And we were like, what are you talking about? And you just giving our songs away. He said, play it for her. And if she likes it, she can have it. I'm like, oh, brother. Okay, fine. So the next day we go to the studio. We put the track in. We don't even tell her we're going to play it. We just put it in. She's kind of listening and stuff. And she comes to the door and she points at us and she goes, who's that for? And we said, well, you, if you want it. And she said, oh, I want it. That song became, what have you done for me lately? Wow. <laughs> so that song basically launched her career, ended ours, at least as artists. And, um, <laughs> The rest is kind of history over, over the years. Over the years, working with different artists, we would always say, hey, we're working on a Jam and Lewis album. Would you like to be a part of it or something? They'd all go, yeah. And then when we get the song done, they'd go, I got to keep that for myself. And we'd be like, okay, fine. You know, <laughs> and we finally got selfish about three years ago when we went in the songwriters hall of fame. Um, they asked us, what haven't you done that you still want to do? And we looked around and we saw Babyface. He went in the same year we did. And we said, well, we haven't worked with Babyface. That would be cool. And then we realized, well, we never got around to doing our own album. Uh, and then the third piece of the puzzle was we never toured singing our own songs or performing our own songs on stage. So those were kind of the three things to check the boxes. Um, and 
so the baby face thing has happened. <laughs> so we checked that box. The album now is done. So we checked that box. And hopefully at one point we, we can tour. But we just kind of felt like we're at a point in our careers where we feel like we don't have anything to prove, but we still have a lot to say. Huh. And the best way we have always, whether we're artists or producers or writers, it's always about the interpretation of the artists that sing the songs, that perform the songs for us. Hmm. Um, they're kind of the inspiration for writing the songs. I mean, the songs we write and the songs that are on our album are all written specifically for those artists. Hmm. So that's interesting. That's kind of the that's kind of the idea of it. And now is just we think is perfect timing because we now feel like we can pull off kind of what we hear in our heads. We can actually execute. And my son always says, you know. The genius in something isn't the idea, it's the execution of the idea. So not that we're geniuses, but we do feel like we have the tools now and the experience to actually pull off what it is that's conceptual in our heads. You know, you mentioned Babyface and he's featured on um, the single, He Don't Know Nothing About It. We were kind of asking ourselves, have these guys ever worked with Babyface before? And my first question was like, if not, then how did that never happen? And my other question was, wait, but these guys must have felt like competitors, you know, at some point too. Did, did it feel like sort of like, you know, you guys are the Lakers and you brought a Celt again to work on this song together? Or, <laughs> or was it all just love from the beginning? Oh, uh, yeah. No, we never felt like we were competing against anyone other than ourselves. I mean, we're always just trying to do our best to get the best out of what we do and out of whoever we're working with. Um, Babyface has always been a friend and, and uh, LA, his partner at one time is also a friend. So they were never rivals, but the world would have you think that, of course. Right. Certainly we're all jockeying for position on the chart, but that was never anything that we sought. We never sought chart position. We just try to make the best song that we possibly could. Yeah. So it was just a joy to work with Babyface and finally get that opportunity and to have him come in and work with us, but not only work with us, but him to trust us hmm. and allow us to be producers of him was an, was an amazing uh, feat in itself because, you know, he's such a great producer and songwriter It's probably, you know, I can't even imagine letting go to that extent, but yeah. he just said, you guys got it and make it happen. Should I have said T-Wolves, by the way, instead of Lakers, Celtics, a couple, a couple Minneapolis That's guys. a great analogy, though. That, that's, a, that's a great it analogy. Is. What was funny back in the day was that we would, you know, we would go out and have dinner together, and people would see us at restaurants, and they go, wait, aren't you Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis? Yeah. Aren't you Ellie and Babyface? Yeah. And y'all having dinner together? It's like, it would blow people's <laughs> minds, right? But we were, we were good friends. And as a matter of fact, back when we met Clarence Avant, the Black Godfather, who was mentors for our careers, for Terry and my careers, Clarence told us when we first met him, he said, if you ever see anybody out there that's maybe having a few problems business-wise or whatever, introduce them to me. And I remember LA, we saw it, I think, at a, maybe an ASCAP event or something. And he said, hey, would you introduce me to Clarence Avant? 
And we were like, yeah. And we called Clarence. We said, hey, you remember what you told us? Okay, we got some guys, LA and Babyface. And he was like, LA and Babyface, what is that? And I said, those two guys like us, they're like us. He said, okay, cool. And he helped them get their business together and get them down the path. So right. um, yeah, no, we, we were competitive with the other records on the charts. There was right. too many other records. We can't just be concerned with them, but right. Um, but we were, no, we were, we were always good friends and it was, and it was fun to work together. And just to, to, to just to, what Terry said was really interesting because he was always, Babyface was always so involved with all of his songs. We always say when we produce songs that we write, we're just listening for mistakes as we're listening. So we never really get that joy of hearing a song without kind of thinking about the mistakes or the kind of the process to get there. And it was interesting when we played the finished song for Babyface, because he didn't have to be in there comping the vocals and making sure everything was perfect. We did all that. When he heard the song the first time, he just said to us, man, that sounds really good. I said, yeah, yeah. And he said, no, that sounds really good. And we said, yeah. And he said, no, that sounds really good. We said, baby face. <laughs> we said, you're baby face. What do you think it's going to sound like? But what it re made us realize is that one is that, yes, the artists don't get to hear themselves like themselves because they go through the work process of it. Right. Yeah. So that was the first thing. But also, I think there was a moment that face had almost where he fell in love with himself or he realized how great he really was. Hmm because he was almost hearing himself through our appreciation of him, mm. ah, wow. if that makes sense. And and we've kind of had that experience with all the artists on, on the record, but he was the first one that kind of made that clear to us. Yeah. That yeah. he got to hear himself just as an artist and just appreciate his artistry, which was which kind of cool. Well, one of the songs on the record is called Baby Love, um, and it features Morris Day, among other artists, including The Roots. And um, that kind of takes us back to you guys early days your your production company is called flight time and i understand that you guys were actually in a band together called flight time that then kind of morphed into the time which of course morris was the the lead singer of and that was kind of the beginning of your career as professional musicians i guess before you guys broke out and got into production and of course you know, Prince's shadow looms large <laughs> over the time. And so on the one hand, you guys had the opportunity to work closely with Prince. You also kind of had to get out of that universe to establish your own thing. But talk a bit about what you learned in those early days that you then carried with you once you guys were producing and writing and calling the shots. Well, I don't think we can ever get out of the, the Prince window. I think <laughs> that that's part of our DNA. I mean... Uh, he gave us our opportunity, I'd say, to to feel um, a national light. Like being in the time was an incredible plus for us because it allowed us to travel and actually gauge our talent, basically, because we had never played outside the Minneapolis, well, like I say, the five state area, um, you know, Wisconsin, um, Iowa, Minnesota, North Dakota, South Dakota. We travel around in those and do colleges and whatever else we could do, uh, ski resorts or whatever. But being in the time, we got to travel nationally. So it, it taught us a lot. And actually doing that, we actually got to hear radio and be exposed to other music that a lot of times we wouldn't be exposed to being in Minneapolis. So all those, all those things kind of fathered um, and inspired our, our, our musical talent, I think. Um, 
but Prince will always be a big part of that. And I don't, I don't ever see him getting away with uh, <laughs> not saying that because he's just a huge inspiration in all that we do. You know, one of the first uh, production jobs was uh, working with the SOS band. Um, and there was a song called Just Be Good To Me. It was number two on the hot R&B singles chart in Billboard. What's interesting about that song is that uh, it used the Roland TR-808, um, which is something that I know became a big part of you guys' production palette. Um, there are, you know, some guys say, hey, we got to get started to work. I don't, I, where's my guitar? Or where's the piano? And uh, is that kind of how the, uh, the Roland felt for you guys? Yeah, definitely. Because we had done, when we did the demo of that song, we kind of did it on a, um, we're, we're always trying to figure out what it was. It was a Roland something of some sort, some old like little drum machine. Yeah, I think it was like a 303 or something. Yeah. And so we were looking for something that kind of had that same idea, but that it actually had individual outputs, right? So you could have, you know, you could put everything on different tracks. Whereas, you know, the 303 and those, some of the early ones, just everything came out of one, you know, output. Um, so that was the thing. But the 808 was like amazing to us because it changed. It became just a tool that we loved the way it sounded. And we also were very cognizant of, about um, we had been using in the time we had been using the Lindrum, the LM1. And that was so kind of identified with the Minneapolis sound and with Prince and with the time, we wanted to make sure we did it something different than that. We didn't want to, you know, regurgitate that sound. We wanted to have a, a different sound. So the 808 gave us the opportunity to do that, to create from a different sonic um, uh, palette, which was very important to us to do. And, you know, and it's also interesting too, I'll just say that the connection between the SOS band and the Prince story kind of culminated when we went down to Atlanta to produce the SOS band record. We got caught in a snowstorm down there and it was in the middle of the time tour, uh, the 1999 tour. And we got caught in a snowstorm down there and we um, missed the next gig, time gig, which was in San Antonio. And when Prince found out we were down producing records, he fined us because he told us don't produce records. And then um, the night we were supposed to mix Just Be Good To Me, we had booked a session at Larrabee uh, Sound with an engineer named Steve Hodge. And we hadn't worked with Steve before, but we knew his name from the liner notes from all the bunch of records we loved, right? So we booked the studio, we did everything. But then Prince called us and he said, hey, come over to Sunset Sound. And we thought, okay, we're gonna work on the time record. So we go to Sunset Sound and Prince basically in a room with myself, Terry, Jesse, and Morris, he fires us. <laughs> oh, and uh, he goes, I heard you were working with SOS band and you're not supposed to do other records. and whatever. So we, we got up and left. And so we kind of looked at each other and we said, well, what do, we, what do you want to do? And we said, well, let's go over to Larrabee and mix the SOS band record. So like literally we got fired from the one session, walked into the next session. We had never <laughs> met Steve Hodge before at that point. I think we talked to him on the phone and that was it. And we walked in and we said, hey, Steve. And he said, hey, nice to meet you guys. What's wrong with you guys? And we said, oh, we just got fired from the time. And he said, really? And we said, yeah. And he said, well, he said, I don't think you guys have anything to worry about. And he pressed play 
and Just Be Good to Me came on with the Steve Hodge mix on it. And it was like, wow. And the rest is history. So <laughs> literally it was a it was a fateful evening that kind of tied, you know, Prince and the SOS band together, kind of in the same kind of Hollywood uh, ending, I guess you would say. Yeah, if if you got to get fired, just walk straight into a hit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> right. That's that's the way to do yes. it. Yeah, that's why we call it freed, not fired. Yep. <laughs> there, <laughs> there you go. go. Um, well, kind of on the back of that SOS band success, you guys uh, wrote and produced Encore for Cheryl Lynn, which was a number one R&B song in 1983. Had another top 10 R&B hit with I Didn't Mean to Turn You On um, for Cheryl, and then Robert Palmer kind of uh, turned that into a pop hit a couple years later. But that whole period, like between 82 and 85, you guys are working with Climax, with Gladys Knight and the Pips, Thelma Houston, Patty Austin, Alexander O'Neill. I mean, you guys were like, you left the time and you're like full on into into producing. It was a, a, a busy and productive era. Um, but you mentioned Janet Jackson a moment ago and the Control album. And that was like next level. I mean, you guys, if you hadn't even, if all you had done is what you did up until that Janet record, we'd already be having this conversation. And now it's just stratosphere kind of, you know, songwriting success. I'd love to hear a bit about how you approached the writing process for that album. Cause you gave us a hint a moment ago that, you know, you had those songs and you were playing them for the A&R guy, but I'd love to hear kind of how you connected with Janet started working together and how the process worked um, for that first record in terms of writing those songs and, and, and producing them. Well, the Janet uh, relationship began because she was a big fan of the time. And she came to see one of our shows, her and her mom. Uh, I remember at Long Beach uh, Arena in uh, LA. Um, and they came to see the show and we met her afterwards. And then we got to watch her in the studio. She was working with um, this is like three years before we actually worked with her. So this was like 82. And she was in the studio with Leon Silvers, uh, the third, uh, working on an album. So we got a chance to kind of see her in the studio and kind of watch and see what it was that she was doing. And she couldn't have been nicer. And, and that was kind of cool. So later on, John McClain, uh, who's an A&R person, I mentioned his name at A&M, he had uh, set us up to work with another A&M artist, a female artist at A&M. And whatever reason the artist didn't want to work with us so he called us and was kind of he said i'm sort of embarrassed to say this but the artist doesn't want to work with you guys and we said okay that's fine he said is there anybody else on the roster you'd like to work with and we said send the roster because you know this is once again before internet and, and texting and all that stuff it was like send the roster so he sent the roster or faxed it i think he faxed the roster and um anyway we looked at it and our names our fingers both stopped at the same name janet jackson so we called John and we said, hey, we want to do Janet Jackson. And he said, hey, he said, great. You want to do what, two songs, three songs? We said, no, we want to do the whole album. He said, you do? And we said, yeah. He said, okay, cool. So we set up a meeting with ourselves and Joe Jackson, her dad and Janet and everybody. And it was interesting because the song we had just got done finishing at that point in time was The Heat of Heat for Patty Austin, which was something we were doing for Quincy Jones. So it had big strings and live drums and this very kind of lush sound. And I remember Janet saying, I don't think I really want my album to sound like that. And we said, no, 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 no. Your album's going to have its own sound. We, we, we give everybody their own sound. And we were walking out the meeting. Her dad said, you guys are from Minneapolis, right? And we said, yeah. He said, Prince is from Minneapolis. And we said, yeah. 
He said, don't have my daughter sounding like Prince. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Mr. Jackson, you got it, you got it. So the approach really was that in our minds, two things. One, before we even went in the studio with her, we just hung out for a week and just had conversations. And just as we were having different conversations about her leaving her mom and dad, moving out on her own, those type of things. And as she was talking and telling us that, we were just kind of jotting notes down. Well, not even jotting notes down, in our mentally jotting notes down, I should say. And um, so that was the one piece. The other piece of it, though, was on the production side, her records were really sonically good records. But when she was little, she had all this feisty attitude. She was just nothing like she just had that attitude. And it was like, what happened to that attitude? Where's that attitude that you had as a, a little girl? So in the tracks that we did, like when we did Nasty, it's like, let's try to give tracks that have that attitude, almost like we're doing them, you know, back in that day, like if we were doing them either for a rap artist or a male artist, just that aggression, and then let her, you know, put her feistiness into it. So that was kind of the formula, if you will. And then when she's asked finally, when are we going to start working? And we said, oh, we're working. And we showed her the notes from Control. And when she looked at them, she said, oh, wait, we're going to write about whatever we talk about? And we said, yeah. And, we, and she said, oh, well, then I want to talk about this and I want to talk about this. Wow. And what it did is it just kind of got her mind flowing that she was part of the creative process. It wasn't like us just coming up with songs and handing them to her. It was like she was a part of the creative process. And I think that changed everything, you know, in, in the trajectory of her career. And it made her excited about being an artist because she was doing TV and she was doing movies and she was doing all kinds of things. But she never really... I don't think wanted to be an artist or really wanted to sing. I think it was more her dad's idea. But at that point, she got really excited about the creative process of, of writing songs. And I think that's what really changed her, her excitement. I think that shows on that record because it, it felt like an autobiographical record. Um, it felt like it was almost like an introduction uh, musically, even though the world kind of knew Janet from good times or different strokes or being Michael's sister or whatever. Um, but, you know, you come into control talking about when I was a kid, I did what people told me, a lot of this coming of age stuff. And then the one that's the most interesting to me is Let's Wait a While. guys really threaded the needle uh with telling this autobiographical stuff you're like but we've still got a young girl here and we're not going to try to push this image too far we still want to be true to where she's at and, and i noticed that she was a co-writer on that song and i think the only one on the record is that because that was something she really wanted to talk about or because it was such a kind of a personal topic or um what, what was it that sort of made that the one that janet actually had a hand in writing well actually she had a hand in writing everything and our you know our thought about writing in that case was that she was coming up with the ideas, even if she wasn't doing necessarily sitting down and doing the nuts and bolts and every of everything. Um, the ideas were all being stemmed from our conversation. So she's credited as a writer on, I think on almost all the songs on the record, which I think is correct because hmm. the songs wouldn't exist without her ideas and her life experience. So that was important to us actually to, to make sure she got credited uh, properly. Yeah. Um, but let's wait a while, actually, she wrote, and um, her girlfriend, Melanie, I can't remember, Mel- Melanie Andrews, is that, was that her name, Terry? Yes, Andrew. also co- Also co-wrote on that, too. 
And when she came up to town, that was cool. When she came to Minneapolis to record, it was just her and her girlfriend. It wasn't like, you know, bodyguards and, you know, a bunch of people like that. It, it was just her and her friend. And so I think it was cool. And, but it was a record that made a lot of sense for where she was kind of at in her life. But then of course, not that it's all undone, but funny how time flies the next song on right after that. Um, she was honestly, when she played the album for her mom, the end of that song, uh, she just kind of faded out. <laughs> she wouldn't play the end of Funny How Time Flies for her mom. She just kind of faded it out and said, okay, mom, that's it. That's the way the album ends. <laughs> so <laughs> who knows? But you know what? It was, it was a, it's kind of the complexity, right? It's, it's the way people are. People are complex. Yeah. Um, women are complex, right? They have, you know, sensuality, they have sexuality, they have aggression, they have tenderness. We try to embody all of those things, and particularly as you're growing up and, and as you're young, you kind of embody all those things. And so I think, and they're all part of really what makes you. Mm. So I think we were trying to make, you know, really with all the artists we ever produced, but really with Janet, we had the chance to really sit and get to know her. And she trusted us. I mean, there was a level of trust that was amazing. When we when we did that song Nasty, I always think about this. When we did the song Nasty, I remember because um, an incident had happened where some guys were bothering her at a club and normally there would have been bodyguards or somebody would have intervened, but we just kind of watched and let her handle it. I mean, we were on, you know, standing by just in case something crazy happened, but afterwards she came over and she said, you see those guys over there? They were talking all nasty to me. I, how come you guys didn't help me? And we said, well, obviously you didn't need our help. Here you are, you're standing right here. So it must be okay. He said, oh yeah, yeah, I guess so, you know? So, but then that became the kind of the subject of the song. But when she sang it, she started singing it in her regular, I guess, Janet voice, if you will, right? Sitting in the movie show, like that up there. And we were like, no, 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 no. Sing it like, you know, the other day when you, she came in one day and had a cold, right? And so everything she was talking like, you're talking like this. I said, sing it like you have a cold. She said, what are you talking about? She said, you know how you were singing it the other day and was like sitting in the move all low? She said, really? Yeah. So she sang it like that. And then she was like, oh, I don't know if that's going to work or not. And we said, yeah, yeah. I said, we'll come back the next day and we'll, we'll figure it out. So we comped the vocal. And when she heard it, she was like, she said, oh, I get it. She said, yeah, yeah, that's cool. There was a trust factor that just that happened and we knew that whatever we threw at her she could handle it and she knew that she would give it a shot a try she didn't have any like oh i don't want to try that it's like no i'll try it you know if it doesn't work obviously it's just going to stay with us but um that was a big part of it and and with all the artists really you got they have to have that trust in you that you're looking out for them and that you're really trying to get something good and something different out of them than what somebody would normally do and we were able to do that with control. And also because we were able to do the whole album. So we were able to sequence the album. 
and so the way this the album even unfolded you know um that was a big that was that was important that that happened like that you know when you look at kind of right in the midst of that janet explosion and and, and in the wake of that album um you guys have a number one pop hit with human by the human league um you have a number one r&b hit with fake by alexander o'neill another number one r&b uh, with sherelle with everything i miss at home and you guys are producing you know, new editions, uh, heartbreak album, which yielded a bunch of hit R and B singles. And if it isn't love, which was a R and B and, and pop hit. The thing that's interesting is these records don't sound, you know, th- it's not like, Oh, another Janet Jackson type of sound. Like, as you said before, you want to find the right fit for each artist, which makes me kind of wonder, you know, with you guys, I'm sure the lines between songwriting and production maybe get, blurred a little bit, but I, I'd be curious to know when you're going to be working with a new artist and you're, you're kind of coming up with a sound and, and coming up with songs, is the studio process part of the, the writing process? In other words, are you, you know, coming up with the sonics as you're coming up with the concepts and the, the lyrical structure and all that, or do you guys kind of go away and think about what do we want to do with this artist? Let's work on some song structures. Let's work on some ideas, then get in the studio and, and see you know, how it takes shape. And I guess that's really a long way of asking <laughs> are, are the writing and production intertwined processes for you guys, or are they kind of one in the same? You know, that, that's a really great question. But fortunately over the years, the artists that we work with, we're fans of those particular artists. And so therefore we dig in, especially if they have a history. Now, some, some of the people did not have a history, a musical history. Yeah. But when you get to uh, artists like New Edition, I mean, we heard New Edition first when we were on tour with the time when we were in Boston at a club and we fell in love with them that very night. So to be able to work with them some years later and have that that opportunity come around, we already knew what we loved about the New Edition. So um, that all becomes part of the inspiration. Um, in, in, in terms of song creation, we created concepts for songs, but a lot of the inspiration came from just what they do. And they have a, a, a guy, Brooke Payne, who is their choreographer, who was around and in the studio with us as we developed songs. And he asked for, you know, Jam to put certain hits and concepts into how the music was developed so that the choreography could be created accordingly. So that helped and it just, it changes the scope of how you would think of a song. So uh, it, it goes all kinds of different ways. With Sherelle, it's just based on her, who she is, her attitude. She's fun, she's crazy. Alexander O'Neill is crazy and fun and all over the place. Um, one of my favorite singers ever. Um, because he can sing a ballad just as well as he can sing an up-tempo. And that usually doesn't happen with, with vocalists, especially male vocalists. So he can do that crooner thing, but man, he can sing a song like Fake, which is so different and so dynamic and kill both. And you go in the studio with him and you let the song play from top to bottom and you have all the ad-lib you'll ever need the rest of your life. And you have to concentrate on the verses because he can't remember the same thing twice. So, you know, and Johnny Gill's pretty much the same way. So, I mean, it, it, 
it's the ebb and flow of it all that, you know, I, I call it the journey. I love the journey. That's why I say, I hope I never arrive, man, because that's the fun part of just trying to figure it out. Hmm. Um, and, and just being in with these such talented people, it's just amazing what you go through and what you end up with at the end of it. You know, with all the different uh, projects that you guys were working on at the time and, and even looking at your whole career, there's a bit of a Janet Jackson through line. You know, there's always a, a, every couple of years another in incredible record coming. And here's 1989 with Rhythm Nation. Uh, if, if you thought Control was successful, now you look and here's Miss You Much, Rhythm Nation, Escapade, All Right, Come Back to Me, Love Will Never Do Without You. I mean, just hit after hit after hit. Um, uh, kind of around that same time, I mean, for me, you guys may have been the first producers whose name I knew. Um, and it wasn't just about the artist. It was like, oh, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. Um, and I can think, you know, people knew the name of maybe Phil Ramone or Phil Spector. But you guys also were the first producers that I could probably draw a picture of um, <laughs> because you had a look. There was a vibe, you know, that people knew who you guys were. And it's, it's really interesting to me to watch, uh, particularly with Janet, as her star continued to climb and rise and your stars continued to climb and rise, there did not seem to be a power struggle or there did not seem to be, um, you know, at least from the outside looking in, any kind of feeling of being threatened by your profile rising. And I'm wondering, how did you guys sort of maintain that balance? Was there something about Janet that just made her inherently feel, you know, trust, trusting you guys and wanting to continue to, to allow you guys to have that spotlight? Um, because you certainly have some spotlight. Well, we never really wanted to be, uh, I guess uh, the thing was, we weren't really trying to be in the spotlight. We did like the idea of people recognizing or, or getting recognition for the craft of songwriting and the craft of production. That was very important, um, but not to shine the light on ourselves, but maybe to reflect the light from our glasses mm -hmm. <laughs> to the other people that do it, that, that you know, I mean, growing up, we were liner note readers, big time. So yeah. the names, you know, when people knew the names in the Motown days, when people knew the names of, you know, Dinah Ross and the Supremes, or the Four Tops, or, you know, the Temptations, and people knew those names. We knew the names of Holland Dozier Holland, of, of Norman Whitfield, um, you know what I mean? Like of Ashford and Simpson, like we, mm -hmm. we were always the people that were digging into those things. And so if we having a little bit of notoriety makes people go, oh no, they're the writers and producers. Oh, the writers and producers. Like I literally sat at a table. I remember we were at a Washington event uh, in Washington on behalf of songwriters, advocating on behalf of songwriters. And we had a whole evening where, um, but I remember Ashford and Simpson performed and I was sitting at a table with some um, Congress people and they were like, wow, these, these guys are, they're amazing. They're amazing. But they're singing all these songs and they're going, oh, I love these songs. These are great. And I, I had to point out to them, yeah, they wrote all those songs. Hmm. Like the singers that you know that sing the songs, you know, you may think of, you know, Diana Ross or you may think of whoever the singers are, but no, they're the ones that actually wrote the songs. Yeah. You know, Ain't No Mountain High Enough and uh, Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell or whatever these songs are. They're the ones that wrote the song. And they go, oh, they wrote the song. Mm -hmm. Oh, like the concept was foreign to them. So I just think that people still need to be reminded of that. And back in that day, we felt like it was we were fine being behind the scenes, but we did want to elevate the level of recognition that songwriters and producers got. 
So I think we were successful in doing that, but never at the expense of trying to overshadow the artist in any way. I mean, people are there to see Janet and do whatever she does or really any of the talented artists that we work with. So we know our place, but we did want to try to elevate the recognition factor and, and the respect factor. Yeah, and to add to that, you know, there's so much talent in the room at one time. As the artist grows, sometimes as a producer, songwriter, you have to back down. Hmm. You have to you have to make yourself smaller in the equation. And we never had a problem doing that because we're by nature just collaborators. As as Janet began to grow and want to do more, we just had to do less, and that was okay with us. Hmm. And we just allowed that to happen, and uh, relationship benefited from it. Well, you know, in the wake of, of Rhythm Nation, you guys continued to have uh, huge success. Uh, Johnny Gill's Rub You the Right Way was an enormous hit uh, coming after that second Janet album, uh, Romantic by Karen White, a number one pop hit in 1991. Um, and then here we come again. It's time for, a, for another Janet album in, in 1993 with the third record. And, you know, that record to me is really interesting because I listened to... Um, a song like again and melodically that's a rangy song and the way that that melody moves you know it almost has a I could almost imagine that in a Broadway musical or something you know just the way that it that, that it moves and and the complexity of the melody I heard from a friend today and she said you were in town suddenly the memories came I think, you know, when you compare that to, you know, a song like um, Rhythm Nation or, or even a Rub You the Right Way, which are very rhythmically driven, you know, it's almost as much about the feel and the groove and the record as it is about the song, where it's like, again, you could just sit down on the piano and play that song and, you know, you don't need any production or, or whatever. I'd love to hear a little bit about you guys' approach to melody specifically, because I think people are, you know, they have a sense of your, your rhythmic uh, production style, but I think melodically you guys do some really interesting things that maybe folks wouldn't have expected from, you know, if they only knew certain records that you'd made. Well, I think melodically um, when Terry and I first start, started trying to write songs together um, when we were really young, um, it was a bit of a clash because Terry grew up, um, loving and admiring Parliament Funkadelic and George Clinton and the kind of whole funk scene. And I grew up, you know, listening to AM radio in Minneapolis. And that was, you know, for me, it was Seals and Crofts and America and Chicago and the Carpenters and, you know, like those kinds of harmony, melody things. And whenever we'd get together to write songs, Terry would make a funky song and then I'd put this really pretty melody over the top and it'd be like, <laughs> no. Or I'd make this really pretty melody and then Terry would put this bass funky bass part on it and it would be like, no, you know. <laughs> and I think the 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 song that maybe solidified it to us was a song we talked about earlier, which is just be good to me by the SOS band, where you had kind of the funky bottom with the bass line and the kind of repetitive bass line and all of those kinds of funky things. 
but then you had, you know, glockenspiel bells and you had just a very hooky melody that just kind of went over and over and over again. Um, and over the years, we just kind of expanded on the idea of that, you know, the, the funky bottom and the pretty top, we called it. And I think all of the songs have an element of that. Um, even on our funkiest songs, there's always, if you listen, there's always some sort of texture or some sort of something in there. Even on a song like Fake, which is one of the funkiest songs we've done, there's a little eerie line sonically that you do. You, maybe your ears don't even hear it, but it's there. Um, that's kind of the pretty line, I guess you could call it. So we always kind of worked like that. The song that probably, I think probably broke through as far as people thinking of us as being able to do, you know, ballads or whatever you want to call it, was when we did Tender Love with the Force MDs. And Tender Love was really for a movie. It was, it was for Crush Groove, which was one of the first hip hop movies to come out. But they needed a song for a love scene in the movie. So they called us. And we did this whole kind of love song type of thing for the movie. day one of those songs that people go if you say Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis they don't necessarily think of that song hmm. but what that did was it made people uh, you know at record companies and, and different people they begin to call us for those kinds of songs where they hey we need a ballad for there as opposed to we need an up-tempo funky whatever they started going hey we need a ballad for this um, and so again as an example of um, this that was written for poetic justice for the movie poetic justice and um, the Janet was starring in, and they needed a song that kind of was a through line type of song that they could use as part of the score of the movie and, and that type of thing. Um, but we always liked that because we grew up, uh, Minneapolis was a very creative community. And so we really got, um, I, I know personally, I grew up, my mom and dad took me to like the Minnesota Orchestra and the Guthrie Theater and all of those things. So for me, strings and piano and live instruments and, and those types of sophistication, sophistication in, in, in writing, that's kind of the fuel for that to me. So I always like the idea of that. And like you mentioned, a Broadway play. I didn't grow up with a Broadway influence that I knew of, but I did grow up going to plays all the time. So, and musicals. So I, I think we just kind of had that in us. And then as we were having success, people would just kind of move out the way and let us yeah. do what we did. We did a, it was cool. We did a song for um, Quincy Jones with Patty Austin called Summer is the Coldest Time of Year, which wasn't a hit record, but it was for our liking, it was probably one of the most sophisticated songs we had done with string arrangements and, and all those types of things. So we kind of like having the, the tools or the, the ability to do a lot of different things. It keeps it interesting, you know? Yeah, not to mention that Jimmy Jam is one of the best melody guys I know. Like, he's extraordinary with melody. Yeah. And, you know, when you say again, Janet is actually one of the best melody singers yes. that I know. 
And a lot of people say that, you know, she's not the greatest singer, but no, she is a great singer because in what she does, nobody can beat her. And that's where you should be yeah. good. That whatever style you have, you should be the best at whatever your style is. And I said, I always said with Janet, it's it's like, I always it, kind of the muse for, for Janet Melodies for me was always um, Diana Ross because you know, you could talk about singers that could sing. I mean, back in that day, it was Aretha and it was different people that could really sing, you know, technically amazing. But Diana Ross is, the melodies that Diana Ross sang were the melodies you wanted to sing along with, mm -hmm. as opposed to the melodies you listened to someone else sing, right? Right. So whenever Diana Ross sang, it was like, you could sing along with it. And that's the way we always thought of Janet, is let's give melodies that everybody can sing along with. Um, and I think that's her, her gift and her, her strength. Well, and, and as a writer, producer, especially when you're trying to make songs that the whole world is going to consume, I mean, that's something I'm sure you have to keep your mind on. Can everybody sing this in the car? Is this something that somebody's going to sing at somebody's wedding? And, you know, all that kind of stuff. And at the same time, you're working with these, some of these vocalists are just insane vocalists, you, you know, with Boys to Men on Bended Knee, where you could just throw the ball up and they can do anything with it, you know, they anything that they want to do um i mean working with michael uh, on screen with janet uh working with mariah carey um I i'm wondering are, are there times any times you walked into the studio and you said i got this melody locked down this is the perfect melody i know what it's supposed to be and then somebody goes and does something on the mic outside of what you would have thought the song should do and you realize oh that's actually what the song should do did any of these <laughs> did any of these vocalists ever kind of change the script for you once they got on the mic? Yeah, I don't know. I can't think of one where overall that happened, but definitely in in, in moments, there's moments in the song. Yeah. Because I think that's where, as we were talking earlier about kind of where that line is blurred with writing and production, where one starts and the other one ends or, or whatever, one ends and the other one begins, I guess. Um, but there are those moments where, as a producer, you have to let the artist be the artist. So in your mind, you may have a certain way as a writer that you think it should be sung. But then as a producer, you realize that the freedom or a note they're going to, or maybe a word they may change because it's more uh, comfortable for them to sing or mm -hmm. that, that you kind of go. I mean, we've, there's been instances where we'll have a, a certain word in a song and for some reason, the artist just when they're not even thinking about it, will change the word to a different word. And rather than go, oh, that's wrong. A lot of times we'll just let them continue to sing it like that. And then maybe we'll come back and go, can you say this instead of whatever? But most of the time, it's kind of let the artist be the artist. You got to let them have, mm -hmm. you know, a little bit of that. So we, that does happen. I don't know whether wholesale a, a, a melody has totally changed that much but certainly elements of it and we certainly encourage we want the songs to grow also we don't like the idea of a song like a lot of songs nowadays when you hear the first four bars of the song you've basically heard the whole song <laughs> because it's a loop of everything we do like the idea of telling a story there should be you know we like the traditional you know idea of a, of a verse of a, of a b section of a course maybe we do a double course the next time then a bridge to get us to the end. And then at the end, maybe we do a modulation or we do a pause or we do take a breath and, or whatever. We like those elements in, in the song. So, you know, we, we try to make sure we incorporate those, those same elements. 
uh, we had Lettucey on the show um, about a year or so ago, and uh, I know you guys worked with her on her uh, 2009 album, Turn Me Loose, and we were talking with her about some of the different co-writers and producers that she's worked with before. And I remember uh, asking her about you guys and she was like, Oh man, she's like, Jimmy and Terry are hard because they won't let you settle for second best. Like when you're writing, those guys are going to push you like, Oh, you know, that's good, but let's, let's, let's make it, you know, a little better. Let's, let's go a little further. Let's push it a little harder. And I think record producers in some way are, a, a rare breed because once somebody becomes famous, most of the people around them don't challenge them. You know, most of the people around them say, yes, they say, Oh yeah, that's a great idea. And you know, the, the people who generally surround celebrities are, you know, they kind of need to be yes people. And how can I serve what this person wants? The exception to that is kind of producers, you know, where you, if you really take your job seriously, you're going to say, no, we're, we're I'm going to push, I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to, you know, we're, we're going to work together and bring out the best. I'd love to hear your thoughts in terms of, you know, the writing process. You guys do tend to work, you know, with a lot of artists who are big, big name artists, some of them with decades long careers, you know, they might have the way that they want to do things. How do you walk into a room with an artist and know that you're going to push them, you're going to challenge them, but you're going to do it in such a way that, you know, it doesn't make them defensive or it doesn't make them shut down, but it opens up that creativity and, and draws that creativity out of them. I would imagine that's kind of a delicate balance. Well, you certainly have to keep it fun for sure. Um, but I think it's the duality of it all. Like you walk in a room as a producer, certainly, because that's the job you've been hired to do. But I think I walk in the room most of the time more a, a fan of that person or that artist or both, you know, because it is a combination of things. Um, and before we even even have a conversation about the music, we've talked about life, what you did for the last seven years, five years, two years, two months, whatever. Before we so by the time we get to music, we've already diffused all the barriers. And now we're just looking for common ground. Like, okay, so what do you want to do? What do you want to accomplish with this? What do you want to say? What do you feel in your heart? And so we've learned a lot of those things when we get to actually uh, writing a concept. And then we have to, once again, throw the concept off the wall a couple of times to see if it bounces back. You know, um, we have a lot of ideas, not all of them good. Uh, so, um, as Michael Jackson used to say, we have to challenge ourselves. Hmm. He said that about everything. And it would be the, the greatest line you could ever write, but he would always make sure he'd come back day after day asking you to challenge yourself and what you were thinking, why you were thinking it. Is there something better? Can we make it better is the question. So I think that's kind of been the mode of attack. And certainly for an artist, sometimes it's daunting because they have to go and then perform that concept. But I think it's good for growth. And I think after a while they realize that. And so they just get in line and just do it. And then they hate me for a couple of days. And then, <laughs> and, and when the record comes out is love. So it's, it's okay. I think the other thing I'd, I'd say to that, Terry, is that when it's an artist, that's a legendary artist, one that we've always wanted to work with or that we grew up respecting or whatever, 
we do our homework. We really try to figure out what it is that made the records that they had that were successful. What was that formula? What was in that formula that made those records successful? And I remember the best, one of the best compliments we got, and we got the comp, we got this compliment from different people in different ways, but the best was Barry White. We work with Barry White. And I remember we did the demo for the song. And most of the time I would sing the demos just because we never wanted back in that day, we never wanted the artist to be intimidated by hearing another artist sing something. And then they're thinking about trying to copy what the other artist did or whatever. So I'd always sing it really badly. Not that I could sing it good, <laughs> but I'd always sing it badly, right? So the Barry White one, I remember I'm on there, oh yeah, baby. And I'm trying to do all this kind of crazy <laughs> stuff. And I remember we played it for him. And um, when it went off, he just kind of looked at us and we said, uh, Mr. White, what do you think? And he just reared back and laughed with this big Barry White laugh. He just said, ha, 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 sounds like me. <laughs> and we were like, okay, good. And that was always the best compliment you could hear was when an artist that's had, you know, tons and tons of hit records and, and just, you know, legendary. If you can do something that makes them sound, they feel like they're hearing themselves being played back to them. Yeah. That's the best. And we've had, luckily we've got to experience that with a lot of artists, but that's, there's nothing like that. Yeah. And, and so going back to one of your previous questions, when you say, do they want to change the melody? I mean, our idea of what they would do is kind of just our idea of what they would do, but the reality of what they will do in whatever period they are in their career where they used to hit high notes and maybe now they don't hit those high notes anymore. Mm -hmm. And we conceived it there, they automatically retune it to where, recalibrate it to where they are in their career right now, right. which is really interesting. Just we did a record with Johnny Gill last year and he heard a record and he said, you know, yeah, I'm not singing that like um, I sing now. I'm like, well, you sing like that to me now too. But for you, you don't want to sing that hard is, is what you're telling me. You don't want to work that hard now. Mm -hmm. So you want to just revoice it a bit. So you just have to allow people to, to do what they want to do and meet them where they are. It's kind of how mm -hmm. we recalibrate things in terms of melodically. There's, by the way, there's a song, there's a song on our album, uh, Mary J. Blige. And Mary called me because at first she wasn't sure whether she like, really liked the song or whatever. But then she called me and then she just said, tell Terry, this is like my best vocal. Like this vocal is amazing. But all she could think about was that Terry just would totally beat her up in the studio. Like she just didn't have <laughs> good memories. <laughs> but when she heard the finished product, she just was like, call Terry. I said, I said, call him. Call him, Mary, text him, whatever, let him know. But it was like, I think the results is at the end of the day, that's that's the important thing. And I think when the artists hear their vocals in particular, because Terry's vocal master, I call him vocal master. And I think when you hear the vocals that, that come across on our album, it should be the vocals that you go, that might be the best vocal we've ever heard them do. Tony Braxton, L.A. Reid, we played it for L.A. Reid, who, of course, signed Tony. And he just said, I feel like a cavity has been filled in my soul that I didn't even know I had a cavity there. When he heard the Tony Braxton vocal, he said, that might be the best Tony Braxton vocal I've ever heard. Okay, well, coming from him, that means a lot.
hearing this level of insight and this level of preparation that you've done through your entire production career, it doesn't surprise me because I don't, I don't think people have your level of success by accident. You know, you, you look into what it's going to take to make this record work and to find this artist at this particular stage in their career and what's going to work. Um, when it came to doing your own record, what kind of homework was there to do for a Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis record to, to find, okay, you know, what, what are the parameters going to be and what's, what's going to feel too pop and what's going to feel too R&B or what's going to feel too whatever? Did, or did you throw that at the window and say, we're just going to have fun? We threw it out the window. Yes, That's sir. the one. Just make music. That must have been refreshing. Just, just make music. Because I, I, I don't know. I've been saying a lot. I don't know if I said it to you guys, but I, really our concept was real simple. Uh, it was two, a couple of concepts. But really, number one was that we felt like we had nothing to prove, but we had a lot to say. So when you don't have anything to prove, that's a very freeing concept because now you can just go make the records that you want to make. And what we did is we picked the artists or we put our wish list together of our artists that we really thought we could make great records with. And in our minds, we knew the records that we felt they should do. So that when you said, there's a Babyface song on the record, we go, what would we want that song to sound like? And then we go make that song. And, uh, or a Mariah song, or a Mary J song, or a Boys to Men song, or, or, or a Heather Headley song, or whatever. We, we just knew, being very selfish, we just made the record we wanted to make. And then we just hope everybody agrees with us, you know? But we just, it wasn't about chasing a trend. It wasn't about trying to sell records. It wasn't about trying to, um, you know, analyze anything, you know, algorithm this and you know, streaming this and all of that. We weren't thinking about the delivery systems. We weren't thinking about any of that. We were thinking about an album. Hmm. 10 songs is what we wanted. We wanted it, you know, in about 45 minutes, we did kind of calculate that in our minds, the attention spans for people. And we wanted to sequence the album in a way that kind of told a story, kind of bookended by Minneapolis, Sounds of Blackness on one end, Morris Day on the other end. Um, those are the decisions we wanted to make. And we can't really control really the way people feel about it, but we do know the way it makes us feel. And then we just hope everybody just agrees with it. Well, it's really cool. You know, just looking at the album, like you say, you, you got Morris Day on there, which is kind of where it started. Um, Sounds of Blackness, which opens up a whole other avenue. You know, you guys have had success uh, with Yolanda Adams and you've had this whole you know, gospel kind of strain that, that we don't even have time to, to get into, but even, you know, ranging from folks like Mary J. Blige, who are kind of your contemporaries to people like Charlie Wilson, who's somebody that, you know, you guys were probably looking up to as, as you were coming up and, you know, just seeing over the course of your career, how you've kind of come up together with people like Janet, but you've had the opportunity to work with, you know, people like Shaka Khan, you know, winning a Grammy for, for producing her and, it, it, you've been able to develop artists. You've been able to get in there and work with legacy artists. You guys have been able to kind of bring your magic to all these different situations. And I think that the record um, really captures that and gives people a glimpse. It's like a great gateway into the work of Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. So the, the record is called Volume One. I hope that's the first of, of many volumes, but we yes, want to encourage our listeners to keep an eye out for it. Check it out. Very cool project. So cool to see you guys uh, still checking off new challenges uh, off the list after all these years working together. And we just thank you so much for uh, spending some time today, giving us a little insight into your process. This has been fantastic. Thank you for having us and we hope everybody enjoys them what we're doing and we appreciate the support that everybody has given us 
so far. We're on a journey together. This is a this is a celebration. We're treating this like a celebration. It's a it's a music celebration. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting other potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. You can also sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and find out how to help support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can follow us on social media by searching for Songcraft Conversations on Instagram and Songcraft Show on Facebook and Twitter. And finally, be sure to check out our friends at the American Songwriter Podcast Network at americansongwriter.com. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.